0: Of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis.
1: Hi, podcast listeners, this is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that is shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to increase major planned and principal giving. QBAC acts as a force multiplier for fundraisers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. QBAC automates the qualification process beyond simple scoring to ensure that your fundraisers have the best prospects. QBAC also uncovers actionable insights about current and future prospects to help fundraisers develop personalized cultivation strategies. Start closing bigger gifts in less time by going to www.cubac.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? I'm looking forward to two things this summer, getting back to the ballpark with my kids and getting the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow back on the calendar. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's for sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All we need you to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There is no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow in your community, reach out and let's have a conversation today. Hi, Wendy. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. Um, I have a sense of where this, I have a. I have a guess at the direction of where this conversation is going to go, but uh, as most of my listeners and you perhaps know, we don't necessarily require our guests to come on uh, having prefaced what we're going to talk about, so we're going to leave that up to you. Uh, but before you uh, pull the cat out of the bag, as we might say, uh, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners?
2: Great. Thank you, Jason. So glad to be on your show. I am Wendy Wilsker. I am managing partner of Boyden Executive Search. I am uh, have recently opened the Boston office, and we are serving the nonprofit sector. I have devoted my entire professional career to Serving nonprofits, and I've been in a variety of fundraising roles. Like many of our colleagues, I started my career as a student caller at my college's annual fund. I was at Syracuse University. I needed a job, and someone told me you could get free long distance calling time at this job in the basement of a building. And I had a boyfriend who went to college out of state, and it was like the perfect job. And I loved it. I loved talking to alumni and parents, and um, I had no problem asking people for money. So a couple of years after I graduated college and had an unsuccessful attempt at working in advertising, I found my way into development. And my first real job in development was at the Jewish Federation of Greater Boston. And I spent five years at Combined Jewish Philanthropies and learned everything from Volunteer management to donor engagement to cultivation, all of the moves management stages, and um, grew in my leadership and my responsibilities, and ultimately was managing one of their divisions. And since then, I have served in a variety of sectors. I have led institutional advancement at an independent school. I served as director of mm-hmm. development at Leahy Hospital. I was most recently chief advancement officer at a social service agency. I spent a little bit of time um, as a consultant and also spent four years working at Lindauer Global, where I learned the business of executive search. And one of the things that I found, Jason, is that executive search is so much like major gift fundraising, is connecting people's mission and values and purpose with great organizations. And that's really what's brought me back to executive search after seven years Um, building a very relationship-driven development program, I really wanted to serve the nonprofit sector in a way that I could help to advance leadership, advance talent, and ultimately advance missions of organizations.
1: So Wendy, I have, uh, before I ask you what, 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 what we're going to take this conversation, I have to take advantage of the fact that I'm talking to a search consultant. Um, I'm a baseball guy. And so I've always appreciated search firms that take the posture of, like, a scout. Uh, You know, like, we have scouts who basically search out really talented (laughs) people who know know how to play baseball. Um, And I don't know that the fundraising space – I don't know if the people – um, the basically the sort of the, the the more represented brands in the executive search space that serve the nonprofit sector and fundraising in particular necessarily approach it that way. Do you follow what I'm saying?
2: I do you know and and I think it's a scout or in my work as a major gift officer, I needed to really understand. What made donors tick? What was important to someone? What did they care about? What was the difference that they wanted to make in the world? And as I began to uncover that, I was able to make those connections. But quite frankly, it was a long-term process, right? It was getting to know someone. It was building trust. It was building relationships. It was staying for the long course and stewarding those relationships. And that's one of the things that I'm excited to bring to Executive Search is that when we're working with candidates... I might talk to a 100 people for a search. Only one person is going to get the job. I want to stay in touch with those other 99 people because I'm meeting fabulous people. And, you know, I want to cultivate and steward those relationships. So if that's going to set us apart a little bit, I'm going to lean on those principles that I enjoyed the most in major gifts work and I think ultimately made me successful as a fundraiser.
1: So I'm very excited. Like I said, when we uh, got started, I'm excited to be talking to you today because it's, anybody who's in sort of the search space in the midst of sort of what we're, uh, I think somebody uh, has teamed, termed it the great resignation on mm-hmm. the back end of this pandemic. We're seeing lots of movement. So I have to imagine you've got some opinions about that. We, our, we ask our guests to come with a big idea, bold opinion. What do you got for us?
2: So you took the words right out of my mouth. There's two things, right? There's the great resignation. And as we're coming out of the pandemic, organizations that have had hiring freezes are lifting the hiring freezes, right? So there's going to be a lot of hiring and a lot of movement, right? My big idea is retention, right? And how do we change what has plagued the culture of nonprofit organizations of this 18 to maybe 24-month tenure? And if organizations, you know, resources are limited right? And I don't think that nonprofit organizations can any more afford the turnover. So as organizations and as nonprofits across the sector are hiring, what do they need to do to retain their staffs? So that's my topic.
1: <laughs> yeah. So so let's just sort of cut to the chase. You're in the business of moving those people around though. So how does it? how does a shop like yours sort of how do you do that? How does an executive search firm, who's in the business of basically making that movement happen, in many cases, how does it? How does a shop like yours ensure that these people are actually staying put? Because. Right. You know, if I'm employing a team of major gifts officers, I don't know that I want them to know who Wendy is.
2: <laughs> well, I have often, um, when, when I was at JFNCS, I told my team not to answer if anyone from Lindauer called. So, right. um, Exactly. But, exactly. Right. So, you know, a, a couple of things. I mean, we do get under the hood with our clients and with candidates, and we want to build teams, right? So, the time that we take in the beginning of the search to really work with organizations to understand where are you at in the evolution of your development program what's your culture what's your pace what's your strategic plan where are you going and then as we're talking to candidates we're getting beyond what are your metrics right okay so you raise x million dollars and you have x number of visits if we're talking about frontline fundraisers but we want to understand what is their approach and you know do you have a connection to the mission of this organization and so our goal is to hire people who are going to stick around and grow. Um, Our goal is to work and develop long-term relationships with organizations so that we can build their teams. I mean, maybe I'll put myself out of business, but I think that there will always be movement, right? There will always be someone who has just reached a peak at an organization and is ready to go on to another organization. There will always be retirement. There will always be movement. But I think that hiring managers really need to think about how do they need to manage differently? And I think that the pandemic taught managers that you need to care You need to cross that boundary of, you know, here we are, we're in each other's homes and everyone has seen each other's dogs, cats, and kids, right? I think that employees have always been looking for their managers to care about them a little bit more, right? To understand someone is not just showing up, there's more to someone than just how many visits have you had, right? And so how are we being flexible? How are we getting to know people and understanding what is important to our employees, and understanding that we can manage them a little bit differently. So I think that leadership has become a little bit more human, a little bit more humble, and I think that is going to be something that may inspire people to stay. It's all about culture, right? It is all about someone saying, I love where I'm working, so that when Wendy Wilsker from Boyden calls, they're going to say, you know what, Wendy, thanks for the call, but I'm really happy where I am. I love my boss. I love the organization. I'm challenged. And I see a growth plan for myself. If folks don't have that, then they are going to answer my call or, or anyone else's call.
1: Is it is it true in your mind that I, I think I've said this a number of times. I don't know that I've said this on the podcast, but I've said this in my seminars a number of times. I know that That the salary for compensation, for example, that's oftentimes negotiated. And there's a lot of chatter about that and whether we're compensating men and women sort of equitably and so forth and so forth. But I I, I think that's what people I think that's what compels people to get the job. But I don't think I think we mistakenly sort of miss the point that that's not actually why people leave. I agree. There's a reason why they come in the front door and that might be the appeal of a, a really great salary, but that's not why they stay. It's not why they ultimately stay, because a lot of times those same dollars are available down the street. I mean, fundraising's become something that's quite competitive. And ultimately, when they leave, sometimes they'll even sort of forego, with the next job, if they've already sort of made it up to the next notch, they'll even forego some of that uh, higher expectation of compensation just to be in, in a place where they can thrive.
2: I agree. You know, People who work in nonprofits are not necessarily motivated by a paycheck. I mean, you have to pay your bills. You have to put your kids through college. You want to go on a few nights vacations. I yeah. was just speaking with a colleague this morning um, who's a consultant and a client wanted to talk about retention incentives. and um, And it just brought up this really interesting conversation because I agree. I don't think it's the money. What do I think is really important that's going to keep someone? I would say to an organization, invest in professional development. Invest in hiring coaches Mm -hmm. for your high-performing employees to get them to the next level. And if you see someone with potential who's struggling, hire a coach for them. Help grow your employees. Provide those opportunities that is going to keep someone at your organization. I think people are motivated by mission. And I think people are motivated by leaders and the opportunity to be seen. One of the things that I was able to do, and I was at a mid-sized nonprofit, we were $25 million. I was on the senior management team. There wasn't a huge hierarchy. But I always felt that it was important that my major gift officers had access to the CEO, that if it was time to introduce a donor to the CEO, they were going to do that briefing. They were going to go on a visit with the CEO. And what always happened was the CEO would come back and say, oh my gosh, Wendy, They're amazing. And I would give that feedback to the gift officer and it made their day, right? Being seen, access to board members. I think very often fundraisers are discouraged if they've been cultivating a donor for years and all of a sudden they make a six or seven figure gift and that donor is taken out of their portfolio. Or all of a sudden, a donor becomes a board member and they're taken out of a gift officer's portfolio. I think there's some negativity, you know, that goes on with that growth. And if you allow your fundraisers to continue to have that access and grow their donors, I think that is a retention strategy. You know, the other thing that I've been thinking about is we put such emphasis on treating our donors so well and doing all of these special things for our donors, what if we yeah. treated our yeah. employees the same way that we treated our major donors, right? Because at the end of the day, the value of those gift officers is just like the value of a major gift. And what would happen if if leadership and managers thought a little bit differently, like that?
1: Yeah, yeah. I remember. It. So, in my first book, I I wrote about uh, what they talk about in the healthcare. So, the healthcare world knows that. The quality of care that's given to a patient ultimately is a reflection of the quality of relationship that the nursing staff has with the hospital. And so if you can retain good nurses and you can retain them for a long time, you can ultimately sort of it's an indirect way to know that patient care is working by taking care of your Nurses. And I don't know why that has never sort of clicked in our space that we were so damn focused on taking care of the donor and the donor's always right and da 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 da. da. Um, but if we really just learned how to take care of our fundraisers and made them feel like they actually matter and that they're not sort of just ex- existing in what I call an intervening sort of subculture, we sort of push them off into a, a corner of the organization that we don't have to deal with. Um, I mean, on some College campuses, advancement is literally on a different part of the, you know, from everything else. Um, I mean, aren't we basically talking about being integrated inside the organization?
2: Well, we are 100 percent. And it was either a guest that you had or some other podcast that I was listening to. But I was saying, how come retention is not something that CEOs are evaluated on, you know, as part of the annual.
1: Evaluate, yeah.
2: Right? Yeah. And, and how yeah, does I, that I become a Yeah, I know
1: we've talked about that. Yep,
2: yeah. yeah, I think yeah. so. I mean, you know, it, it should all be integrated, right? Because your fundraisers have to be part of the ecosystem of your organization. They're storytellers. And having that kind of access to students, to faculty, to being able to share the stories That is what motivates people, right? Whenever I was having a bad day, all I had to do was to go downstairs if there was a Parkinson's dance program or if there was another program taking place, right? And I got so re-energized by seeing the work that we were doing. And I think when you have your fundraisers in different places, they don't see, right, the, the outcome of the dollars that they're raising money for. And I think that access and the opportunities to be involved in the organization are so important as well.
1: So one of the things that I routinely encounter, because we do a little bit of, we don't actually do search work at Responsive, but we we oftentimes advise our clients on the fact that they're perhaps going to, because they're, they're inevitably after working with a shop like ours, they're going to eventually hire someone. And one of the things that I, Typically run into, and, and and you sort of alluded to this a minute ago, and I'd really like you to unravel the thought because I mean, we with like I remember a client I worked with in uh, Wisconsin for quite some time, and it's that notion of sort of building longevity into the contract. Mm-hmm. And so we, um, I think we had picked it up. This is probably language that you all, you know, firms like yours sort of come up with and and build these things. But it's basically it was a longevity bonus sort of structure that incentivized. In this case, it was the executive director, not even the fundraiser. Because the shop was investing significantly in their fundraising capacity, and, and I and I impressed upon the board, I said, "Look, if you're going to basically turn this guy into a more externally focused fundraising CEO, you're going to also have to ensure that this guy sticks around for a while." And so here's an institution that had historically, I think, I don't think they had negotiated more than two year contracts, and now they're learning how to write five year contracts, and not only writing five year contracts, but uh, incentivizing him to stick around and providing a significant bonus on the back end, mm-hmm. because ultimately in, in this organization in the five years that we worked through three years that we worked with them. And then the subsequent years, as we tracked their fundraising performance, I mean, they did some remarkably amazing things in terms of fundraising, but it's because that CEO stuck around.
2: Right. You know, I think it's really interesting and I wonder, are we going to see more of that? Right. I think it's a little bit, the exception than the norm. Um, I think at the at the CEO level, it's one thing. And I think sometimes those incentives, um, you know, are part of contracts or, you know, the, the years or what have you. And I think it's so important. I think the question also becomes, OK, then do you go down to your chief development officer and what do you need to be doing to right. incentivize? And, you know, as you said before, is the incentive money? what are the incentives that will keep someone um stay and you know maybe it's not the same thing for every person you know i've heard on your podcast you have four kids i have four kids boy i wish i could parent all of them the same right <laughs> but they're not and so i think that in your team you know how do you really understand what someone needs as they're growing you know i'm not quite sure that nonprofits are at that sophisticated level, maybe some are, of having career paths, of having those talent management conversations and the tracking and identifying the rising stars and creating those management tracks and and professional opportunities. Um, And I think it's really interesting. I mean, I think we have to look at what are some very good practices that have kept CEOs um, in their roles and for-profit or not-for-profit, and really, what can we adapt from the from the for-profit sector that will make sense for someone who's there because they're so mission-driven? Um, you know, I know some of the things that I had done, people had asked to go on conferences, and monies are limited at nonprofits. Um, we partnered with um, a small professional college outside of Boston that was training people how to be coaches um and, and organizational development. And as part of their fellowship, they had to have on hand on-site coaching. And so we hired some of those yeah. coaches and it was a great experience for my team. So I think we have to look at it at all levels. And, and I would argue as well in development, you want to hang on to your gift processors and your operations person people because they know the stories behind the stories, right? So how do you create a culture, right? that is appreciating people at all levels so that you are eliminating some of that turnover and also creating some great career tracks.
1: You know, it's interesting to sort of read in between the lines, to listen in between the lines of what you're saying, because you're doing, you you started a few minutes ago with well, we started with longevity and, Talks a few for a few minutes. We've repeatedly sort of talked about the idea of professional development. But at responsive, one of the things that we constantly are saying to audiences, and I say this on here occasionally, is that fundraising in a lot of these organizations isn't the problems that they encounter are not actually about fundraising per se. And I think a lot of times we're hiring these people because we think because we're so damn focused on fundraising and what their fundraising skills are but what we don't understand is is that if you invest in professional development and if you understand um, con- uh, concepts such as organizational design creating that culture like you're describing where people can actually thrive which is oftentimes those places where you can hire those young rising stars to sort of take off um I mean, so much of what I hear, and I hear this from my guest, and I, I certainly hear this when we're you know, when the recording button's not being pushed. Um, you know, people are moving around and a lot of reasons is because the hiring is so darn focused on the fundraising and it's not focused on these other components that you're talking about.
2: I think you're right. And I've had a lot of conversations about how are you looking at the whole picture of who someone is, right? Yeah. I think a lot about what's inside right what are those soft skills that can't be taught and what can be taught right you can learn about an organization you can learn planned giving you know those those kind of the technical yes. aspects right you can learn the technical aspects of the work but you cannot teach someone how to connect with another person you can't teach someone how to be curious you can't teach hustle right You're going to bring on someone who you need to be a road warrior gift officer to do discovery calls and to make those connections. I don't think you can teach that. So when you look at someone's resume going beyond um, just those metrics, right, of dollars raised and gifts closed, I'm encouraging candidates and I'm encouraging hiring managers to ask the questions about how many donors have increased their gifts. How many of your donors in a portfolio have joined committees or have become involved? Because that's showing that you're doing that good work of getting to know people. I've also been encouraging candidates to elaborate on their volunteer experiences, right? Your resume should give the, the whole outlook of who you are, what you care about how you're involved in your community, because then that paints a little bit more of the picture. You know, yes, fundraisers have to bring in certain amount of dollars, but how are you also going to advance the mission of the organization that you're serving? How are you going to deeply connect with the cause that you're raising money for? And that's where I think you get to look at the whole picture of someone, and that's where the connection really sticks, right? That's where I talk about For me, what I love about executive search, it's everything that I loved about major gift fundraising. Because when you find that spark of a donor connecting with an organization and you have to work really hard to keep that donor, right, engaged as a donor so they don't just move on to another organization, it's kind of the same thing, right? When you hire people who care deeply about the mission, what are you doing to make sure that they are loving the organization as much on, you know, your Three or four, as they did on day one. Um, so I think it's really looking at the whole person, right? And I think sometimes we've told candidates like, "Oh, you have to just talk about your job, talk about these metrics." But now I think we're going to be going a little bit beyond. Again, maybe that's a good outcome of the pandemic that we that that our curiosity about who people are, people bringing more of their full full selves to their work.
1: Yeah. So. I'm, I'm interested to see if you and I would be on the same page on this. If you and I were advising a client, they had they got two candidates to pick from. One is a younger individual who's raised half as mon- half as much money as the other person, but they're clearly a demonstrated what we would generally in this space call a curious chameleon. The other candidate is ten years older spouts off, not, you know, right and left about the seven figure gifts that he or she has secured. um, I'm always going to be betting on that younger, curious chameleon.
2: Yeah. I had that situation um, during my tenure at Lindauer and there was someone who walked into the room and lit up the room and wore a tie that was the school colors and just had this, like, was already like a brand ambassador. And the other candidate who had several yeah. years over them was, you know, doing the same, right? Talking about, you know, this is how I do things, you know, and was super, super qualified. Um, but they wound up hiring a yeah. person with less experience because they were a greater fit, right? There was a little bit more, I think, of of the curiosity. I think of the, like, flexibility, that hunger, that enthusiasm. Um, and I think that it's also for organizations And hiring managers have to understand who are you, right? What's the pace of your shop? What's the culture of your organization? What's the personality of your organization, right? Who do you need? I recently read um, an article on LinkedIn and it said there's two types of fundraisers hunters. And farmers, right? You probably heard the same thing, right? The hunter is like, oh, I'm going to go out and get the meat and bring the meat home and it's going to be a great kill, right? And they come home and it's great and, you know, and, and you've got that, you know, that that donor. But the farmers take their time and they sow the seeds and they water and they watch things grow. But you're going to have the same result. Different organizations at different phases of their evolution need different characteristics. When I was building my team at JFNCS, I needed the hunters. I needed people who were going to go out there and connect with donors who had never been spoken with before to thank them for their support, to hear their story, to renew their gift and ask for increased gifts and to engage with them. I didn't have the time to do research, to let the seeds grow. We had to get out there and do a lot of things at the same time. I made some hiring mistakes because I didn't understand my pace, and I hired someone who worked at a slower pace. They had raised great dollars at a much larger institution, but I needed someone to work a bit faster. So I think all of this comes back to doing the work as hiring managers and as an organization and working with consultants like you and your team to understand who are we. You have to know who you are. Before you're going to, you know, engage in successful hiring, especially in in building teams.
1: So I saw I I did I I saw your uh, your post about the the farmers and the, the farmers and the hunters. And it reminded me, Wendy, when I read that, it reminded me John Hagel. Um, in the Silicon Valley has recently published a book that's based on some research that his team had done, I think about a decade ago. Um, in a section of the book, he basically talks about what's called the passion of the explorer. And I think this is one of the things that we haven't developed an appreciation for sufficiently in fundraising as it relates to hiring talent. And one of the characteristics that so they basically figured out, they kind of narrowed down or the moving popul- you know, employed population in this study down to about 14% of the people that are out there have what they call the passion of the explorer. And the, the argument that Hegel is making is that these people are particularly suited for sort of where our 21st century workplace and all the competitive challenges and sort of dynamics that we're competing with and da-da-da-da. But I think the interesting thing that Hegel says that's particularly applicable to fundraising is that he says that that the passion that these individuals, one of the key characteristics about these individuals is that they have a a staunch commitment to the domain with which they're in. They're committed to, and in the case of fundraising, that would mean that their identity, their professional identities are willingly rooted in fundraising. And I go back to the, the, the example of the, the younger rising star who perhaps demonstrates this, um, you know, like the character, the two characters we were just talking about a few moments ago, that younger person, oftentimes in my mind, not younger, we'll say less experienced, the less experienced individual oftentimes has the passion of the explorer. That older, a more more experienced person, oftentimes in my case, I find hinges on professional expertise they developed in other places like sales, PR, marketing, and other places. And so their commitment is not, their 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 passion is not rooted in that particular domain. Do you follow what I'm mm-hmm, saying mm-hmm, or what he's mm-hmm, saying?
2: Mm-hmm. I do. You know, I think that's like a- I
1: want people to I want people to come in and fall in love with fundraising. So I'm not saying they can't come from those places. I'm not saying they can't come from those places, but when I read what Hegel's talking about, I'm like, okay, once you're in this fundraising role, I don't want you to constantly, I, I totally get, for example, these folks who are constantly saying fundraising is like sales, but that also suggests your heart's not in fundraising. I, I, I want to know what's different, not always always know what's similar. Does that make sense?
2: It totally does. And, you know, I don't think fundraising is like sales, right? Donors give from a different lens, from a different part of their brain than sales, right? It is about that emotional connection. It's about a legacy, right? When you think about a donor who includes an organization in their estate plan, it's like the organization is part of their family, right? So the best fundraisers are people who are deeply connected and, and committed to people and to causes, We were just invited to participate in a call with a group of young rising stars. Um, Someone has put this group together. And um, these were rock stars. I mean, they're all in their early 30s. What was very surprising to me, Jason, is many of them had advanced degrees, not just masters, MBAs, Mm -hmm. PhDs. These people are practitioners and students. That did not exist. 25 years ago. You know, I think that what we've seen in fundraising over the past 30 years is literally the professionalization of the profession, right? I mean, I don't know, 30 years ago, there weren't that many books about fundraising. Um, And so I think now, right, you can be a student of, you know, you can get a degree in nonprofit management. And so I think we're going to see a next generation of nonprofit leaders who have made a commitment, right, from a much earlier age than some people who have fallen into it, you know, who are, you know, learning and and flying by the seat of our pants and learning on the job. And I think so much of what we learn is through our experiences. But I saw something really different with this group of millennial fundraisers and a different kind of commitment and, and seriousness to kind of learning the craft, of development and and learning, like really learning the art and science of it. It was just, it was such a fascinating conversation, but I I wonder if we're going to see more people taking an intentional path into the field of fundraising than just falling into it the way many of us did over the past few decades.
1: That's totally affirming. And and, uh, I I, I think we were having that. So with my previous book, Wendy, we talked a lot about we talked a lot about what you just said. It, It was the idea that sort of and I haven't talked about that in probably 100 episodes, if not more the, the sort of the more senior among us oftentimes describe their professional path into fundraising through the back door. And so it sort of comes with this sort of this inferiority, insecurity, inadequacy, sort of things like it wasn't, it it lacks this level of intentionality. And I'm right there with you, Wendy, you young, you talk to some of these generally younger fundraisers and like right out the gate, um, I think about one of my earliest podcast guests, she, she's, she's leading a team of 40 fundraisers over at CHOP in Philadelphia. Um, she like right out of college. She did. She's probably not 40 years old this year. She's leading a team of 40 individual fundraisers at the you know big healthcare facility in Philadelphia. She's remarkable, but she identifies herself as a fundraiser. First and foremost, she doesn't sort of, she doesn't allude to the idea that she came through the back door Um She has no insecurities about the type of work that she's doing.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, I think higher ed probably led the way, right? Um, But I think that, and and I think maybe healthcare came next. And then you look at the, and then you look at the dot orgs, right? All of the social service agencies, right? Where many of the people leading development started off as volunteers, right? And so I think the sector as a whole, is catching up. You know, when you look at CASE, which has been around for so long and has, you know, always had these incredible conferences, you don't see as much of that in other sectors. And so I think that there's, I feel a responsibility as someone who's been in the field, you know, for a long time. And really, I I view myself, I am a fundraiser through and through. I'm committed to the nonprofit sector. I feel such an obligation to be paying it forward, to be a mentor Because I am only where I am because so many people took an interest in me and in mentoring me. I think the next generation of nonprofit leaders will have to have those mentors, but they're doing a lot of other kind of learning that is so much more formal. Um, And it's it's just going to be fascinating, you know, to see that trajectory.
1: The, um, so when I'm usually saying I've, I've written this, I've said this in, on the podcast and I've said this to clients, I said, oftentimes you're going to, when you're hiring these younger fundraisers, this sort of millennial generation of young fundraisers, taking it very intentionally. Um, I just said this to a client in Denver that I was working with before the holiday six months ago, wrapped up with them six months ago. said you're going to hire somebody who's perfectly qualified for this job there and, um, They're going to be, in many cases, they're going to need to be compensated in order to be competitive with the other jobs that they're qualified for, same jobs, other institutions nearby. They're going to perhaps be some of the, you know, right there in the senior leadership levels of all of your compensation, but they're generally going to be 10 years younger than the people for whom you're paying those same salaries inside your organization. Does that make sense to you?
2: Well, it does. And one one thing that is changing rapidly is transparency around salaries. And many job sites are starting to require salaries are posted. And I don't think that's going to be as much a challenge within the fundraising field, but it will be a challenge for people in organizations who are working in other departments where you have division directors, where you have program directors who maybe are at a higher level in the organization's hierarchy, but are making less money.
1: Than a frontline fundraiser, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. So that's, and, and that's, and that's exactly with my last employer. So, when my last employer, I was hardly, I think I might have just recently ten, turned 30 years old, coming out of a major gifts role um, in Washington, moving to a more, um, to a, you know, a, lar- a smaller metro area. Um, I came on the scene at just, just probably, like I said, probably just around 30 years old. And the um, the much more senior to me, another member of a leadership team, was probably 15 to 20 years older than I was, but I was making $10,000 more a year than he was. And I mean, he got himself totally tied up in knots, and all these people were basically paying me was slightly more than I was making when I was in Washington, D.C., Um and, I mean, he got himself totally tied up in knots. I'm guessing that's what you're talking about. Yeah,
2: I mean, it's, it's really hard, right, because you can argue, right, these are revenue-producing positions, right? It's not saying that people are yeah. – necess- it, it's different kind of work, right? You can't change the whole system, but in order to achieve the kind of equity that is really needed in the field and, and in every industry, right – Salary transparency is really big. I mean, look, you can look up any nonprofits 990 and you can see the top five highest paid employees. And it was really interesting because of several years ago, um, the CFO came into my office and said, you know, your senior major gift officer is going to be in the top five. Like she needs to know that because people might say things to her. And, um, she yes. was bringing in millions of dollars and she was absolutely earning every penny, but so was everyone else throughout the agency. And so I think it's a little bit more of, of like a, a, a reckoning, an institutional culture, because you can't all of a sudden say, okay, uh, with all of these dot orgs, nonprofits, I'm just using as an example where there is such a discrepancy between the salary of a gift officer and the salary of a program director it's a really big challenge is the it
1: is essentially what we're talking about. We'll wrap up on this thought, but it's, it's, it's it, I think it's sort of what we're getting at here. Um, When you're hiring a lot of these organizations, especially smaller nonprofit organizations, they have generally hired leadership, leadership level roles on the more programmatic side and administrative side, which generally speaking for a smaller nonprofit organization, all of those compensation levels can be relatively consistent across the board. And generally you can find talent in in a lot of those areas that are generally, they sort of all fit in the same box, if you will. But is basically what we're talking about, Wendy, that when you enter into the fundraising space, and I find this with a lot of the private, private schools, you know, thriving sort of private schools that are growing and they're hiring their first chief development officer, chief advancement officer for the first time. They're now starting to hire sort of outside, they're hiring inside of a market and it's a market. They don't understand that there's a market for fundraising talent in the same way that there's a market for everybody else that they've hired. And so they're not competing with the other private school down the street. They're literally competing in many cases. I'm saying to my clients, for example, I'm working with a client in, um, in Georgia right now, and they've got universities all around them. I mean, tons of, tons of universities within, you know, a 50 square mile area. And I'm like, you're not competing with those two other private schools in town. You're competing with those other 12 major universities mm-hmm. and systems of higher education, not to mention healthcare in the area.
2: Yeah, I mean, we we can talk about salary discrepancy within organizations, but then when you talk about salary discrepancy across the nonprofit sector, right, where if you work in healthcare or higher higher education, you're going to get paid top dollar. And then you look at some of the more exclusive private schools. But then when you get to the cultural institutions or the um, environmental institutions or museums, I mean... You can have a chief development officer who's making the same salary as a gift officer down the street, to your point, at a hospital, right? There's so much discrepancy across the field, and I think it does make it really hard, right? I think that one of the things that that we're talking about with our clients is just because you're a university or a hospital doesn't mean you can only hire someone who's worked in higher education or healthcare. A good fundraiser is a good fundraiser if they um, connect with the mission, but if you are a museum and you really want someone who's learned great skills as a fundraiser in healthcare or higher education, they're not going to work for you for, you know, under 120000 or maybe that's, you know, maybe it's under 150000 That might be what they're paying their chief development officer. And of course, geography is making a big difference too. And now when we talk about borderless talent, right? If you are down in the South, right, and you're saying you don't have to show up for to come to the office, now you're looking, wow, maybe I can hire some great fundraisers who are in major metropolitan areas working for some top institutions. They're not going to come to your shop and get paid, you know, some salaries in the South that are far lower and they're still paying their New York City rents, right? So I think this this salary, I mean, we could talk like for days about, you know, compensation yes. and salary within the sector and across organizations, And the transparency is going to have a really interesting impact. And it'll be interesting, you know, maybe we talk about this like a year from now to think like, well, what happened now that all these salaries were being posted? How have things changed? Because they're just going to have to, right? And I think it's also going to have to tell boards and finance committees, right, how they're thinking about their investment in their personnel, right? And coming back to retention, right, if you want to keep people it is less expensive to keep people than to have that turnover, right, at all levels across organizations. And so how do you think about putting that investment into your people so that they stay? And maybe you have to toss a program director another 5000 10000 But if they leave, you're going to be paying a whole lot more money.
1: So Wendy, I like to advocate for people who are okay with challenging the status quo. And I know you're a, an established firm, but what you guys, your your particular, particular division, as you were explaining to me before we hit the record button, is sort of in startup mode. So tell me, as we sort of wrap up, there's probably a handful of people who might be inclined to reach out to you. How are you sort of challenging the status quo and who is it that you want to hear from?
2: Absolutely. So we are a boutique firm that is part of a global organization. Every search that we lead and every search in Boyden around the world is led by partners. There is not layers of who our clients work with. They know exactly who they're working with. We have weekly communications with our clients, and we are completely transparent with where we are in the process. Um, For candidates, we want to get to know you. We are not just going to be talking to you about one search, and you'll never hear from us again. We want to be partners with you in your career journey. And I think with our clients, we want to be your brand ambassadors. We take that really seriously that we are an extension of your team's. And those are some of the values that is across Boyden. Um, one of the things that we're excited to bring to our clients is our cross-sector expertise. And so perhaps we're working on a search for a CEO of a nonprofit, um, and maybe the nonprofit is looking for someone who has a different skill set, maybe someone who's worked in the for-profit sector and has a deep connection to the mission. Our colleagues around the country will know those talented professionals. So we believe that we're bringing something a little bit different. Um, but again, I think as we talked about, my role as a frontline fundraiser gives me those skills and that deep commitment to cultivation and stewardship and 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 trust and, and transparency. And that's what we're bringing to our clients and to our candidates. Um, if you are a hiring manager, if you're thinking about building your team, Call us. We'd love to talk with you. If you are at any stage in your career and you're thinking about what you're going to do next in your career, we'd love to talk with you as well.
1: Wendy, if somebody does want to reach out to you, do you have a, is there a website you want to send them to? Uh, you want me to give them your email address? Uh, g- give us give us some information on how they, we'll put, uh, we'll put some information about you in the show notes, but uh, how do you yep. want them to reach out
2: to Absolutely. you? Absolutely. wwilfsker at boyden.com is my email address. boyden.com is our website. I am also very active on LinkedIn. I try to post about three days a week myself, my business partner, Lisa Vona. If you comment or share or message us, we will respond to you. You will get a response within 24 hours. We want to hear from people. We want to be part of this conversation. It's a really exciting time for nonprofits. It's a transformational time. And we want to be, we want to be really in it um, with our colleagues across the country.
1: Wendy, I can keep you going. I've much enjoyed this conversation. We lose our listeners in about 45 minutes, so we've landed the plane right about the right time. Thank you again. You're always welcome back.
2: Thanks so much. It was great to talk with you.